Welcome to Locked On Mariners, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Here's your host, filling in for D.C. Lundberg, Jason Burke. Thank you to Wink Martindale on that one, and welcome to the Locked On Mariners podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am your host for today, noted baseball fan Jason Burke of Locked On A's, filling in for Douglas Chancey Lindbergh. And today we are going over the 1989 World Series. Uh, As I just mentioned, we've been here for 20 seconds. I already said this, but I'm repeating myself. I am the host of the Locked On A's podcast here on the Locked On Network, so you may recognize my voice from over there. I've also been uh, a guest of DC Lumberg's here on Locked On Mariners a couple times. I was uh, one of the contestants in one of his Jeopardy episodes, so uh, he had me on. I buzzed in like twice. So, actually, you probably don't know me from the Jeopardy episode. Uh, We did another episode, too. So, you may know us from one of those, but probably not the Jeopardy one. I was fairly quiet. I knew nothing. Uh, DC goes way too deep sometimes, and uh, I did not appreciate that. My baseball knowledge is more like, hey, yeah, I remember the name Boof Bonzer. That's hilarious. And he's like, now, what was his stat line in his rookie season in 2006? And I'm like, well, geez, that's just not fun. I don't know. Um, So, yeah, Jeopardy with DC is just a lot of fun. Uh, I come because the shows are fun, not because because I'm great at the trivia that he asked me. So uh, if you haven't heard those, go back and listen. They're, they're a good time. Um, but the epi- the series that we're talking about is a 1989 World Series because I requested it because it was the last time the A's won a World Series. And uh, I kind of remember the earthquake. So, uh, so here we are. But uh, before I get into the episode, please remember to download, rate, and subscribe to our shows wherever you like his- listening to podcasts. You can also ask your smart device to play the Locked On Mariners podcast, Locked On A's podcast if you want to, or any program here on the Locked On Network. You can also follow Locked On Mariners on Twitter at LO underscore Mariners. You can follow my show at Locked On A's. I don't need an underscore. Haha, <laughs> we're fancy like that. And uh, you can follow me personally at by Jason B. But let's get into it. The 1989 World Series featuring the mighty Oakland A's and then the, uh, in my opinion, the stupid San Francisco Giants. The Giants had lost the NLCS in 1987, but prior to that hadn't finished better than third in the NL West since an NLCS appearance in 1971. They had last made it to the World Series in 1962, and then the A's, on the other hand, had been to the Fall Classic the prior year, losing to the Dodgers. You know, the whole Kurt Gibson thing. Uh, that happened in 1988. And then they also made it back to the World Series in 1990, where they were swept by the stupid uh, Cincinnati Reds. So, uh, you know, that that was fun, too. Thanks for writing that, DC. Super appreciate that. Anyways, let's get back into the good stuff. The A's powerful offense was led by the Bash Brothers of Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. There is a nice Netflix documentary on them called The Bash Brothers Experience. Go check it out. Learn a whole bunch about uh, Jose and Mark. But back to what was written for me. Uh, Canseco missed the majority of the season with injury in 1989. But uh, Tony Phillips, Mike Gallego, and Stan Javier provided depth and versatility off the bench and each of those three sucked significant playing time. Phillips started in 134 games at six different positions. Their pitching staff was also very, very good, leading the junior circuit. In ERA at 3.09, Dave Stewart was the ace of the staff and not the Dave Stewart from the Arrhythmics uh, because this Dave Stewart operated in nightmares, not sweet dreams. They are not made of these. Anyways, he won 21 games for the A's and former Mariner Mike Moore led the rotation with a 2.61 ERA and also won 19 games. Storm Davis won 19, Bob Welch won 17, rest in peace. And then their bullpen was excellent too, anchored by one of the premier closers in the history of baseball. 
Eck, or as he's more commonly known, Dennis Eckersley, or as my mom knows him, that pitcher with a really nice tush. <laughs> she loves his butt. Anyways, the Giants also had a powerful offense and led the NL in slugging and hit the second most home runs. Will the Thrill Clark hit 333 and drove in 111 runs. Kevin Mitchell, uh, the guy with the barehanded catch and all those highlight reels from the 80s, uh, that Kevin Mitchell. Anyway, he blasted 47 home runs and drove in 125. And young Matt Williams came up from the minors and contributed down the stretch. Brett Butler and Robbie Thompson provided a great opening salvo at the top of the order, setting the table for the Pacific Stock Exchange of Clark and Mitchell. And while the middle of the order was certainly doing most of the damage, Butler and Thompson proved invaluable. In the few games in which neither played, the Giants did not win. Their pitching staff was led by Big Daddy veteran Rick Ruschel, I'm going to say. We're going to refer to him as Big Daddy for the rest of this podcast. He won 17 games. Uh, Scott Gereltz won 14 ballgames and accumulated a 2.28 ERA. Most of the starting staff spent some time on the DL, uh, currently the IL, at one point or another. Don Robinson was the only starter to remain healthy the entirety of the 1989 season, and the bullpen was solid, but in search of a closer. Craig Lefferts finished 33 ballgames. Goose Gossage finished 22, but was waived in August. Michael Acosta finished 15 ballgames, and Jeff Brantley finished 12. In mid-June, the team traded for Steve Pedrosian, who was very good on MLB The Show, I must say, and then the bullpen was solidified. The Giants' defense was also quite good leading the NL in fielding percentage and committing the second fewest errors. They'd face the Chicago Cubs in the NLCS and of course they beat them because one, they made it to the World Series and two, the Cubs just didn't win World Series back then. So uh, we're living in a brave new world. The Giants would take that series four games to one and then the A's meanwhile faced an up and coming Toronto Blue Jays in the ALCS and also won their series four games to one and this set up the first Crosstown series since 1956 uh, which is the last time that the Brooklyn Dodgers faced the New York Yankees. And anticipation across the bay was high for this series, which began in Oakland on October 14th. Man, remember when World Series just starts so early? That was fun. Anyways, uh, the Giants set Scott Geraltz to the hill for Game 1. Opposing him would be seemingly the invincible Dave Stewart. After a quiet first inning, the A's would go off on Geraltz in the bottom of the second. Former Mariner Dave Henderson, eh, if you want to claim I'm sure, <laughs> he would lead off the second inning with a base on balls, and then one out later, Terry Steinbach would single, sending Hendu to second base. He'd score on the next hit, a single from Tony Phillips, and then Steinbach advanced to third. Next hitter was Walt Weiss, who, you know, former Rookie of the Year winner, and he grounded to first baseman Will Clark. Clark threw home to try and get Steinbach, who was trying to score, and uh, catcher Terry Kennedy of the Giants couldn't hold on to the throw, however, and Steinbach scored. Weiss's hit was scored a fielder's choice, and Kennedy was charged with an error. No RBI for Weiss, and the run was unearned. But, you know, it still counted on the scoreboard, so that's all that matters. Uh, After working the count full, Ricky Henderson then lined a single to the opposite field to score Phillips. And before anyone knew what happened, Oakland was up 3 to nothing, and the game was over. Oh, no, there's more. Dave Parker would extend that advantage, leading off the third with a solo home run, and Walt Weiss would lead off the fourth with a homer of his own and bring the score to 5 nothing. Game over. This was not Scott Geralt's finest hour. He'd pitch those four innings only and allow seven hits, five 
runs, only four of them earned. He'd only walk one, but allow two home runs while striking out five. And on the flip side, Dave Stewart lived up to his reputation as a scary, scary man, and he had a complete game shutout in which he struck out six, allowed five hits and one walk. He faced four batters or fewer in the first eight innings, and it was just brilliant pitching from the man who was cast off by three different organizations before Oakland picked him up in 1986 and turned him into an ace because, you know, that uh, they still do that. It's it's fun to watch. Anyways, uh, in game two, Oakland wasted little time getting on the board. Ricky Henderson let off with a walk. You know, he does that. And then he stole second base. He does that too. And then uh, this was looking like the beginning of what manager Tony La Russa called a Ricky rally. A Ricky rally is when Henderson would walk, steal second, steal third, and then score on a sack fly without any base hits. But a Ricky rally also had layers. If uh, Tony Phillips or Mike Gallego were batting second following a Henderson walk, they could also just lay down a sack bunt and have that be part of a Ricky rally. But on this day, it was Carney Lansford as the number two hitter, and uh, a bunt was just not uh, his repertoire. So instead, with Ricky Henderson on second base, Lansford smoked a line drive double down the right field line, scoring the fleet-footed... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice writing there, DC. Uh, the fleet-footed Henderson for a quick one to nothing lead. After both teams went down 1-2-3 in the second inning, the Giants scored their first run of the series in the third. Good job for them. And uh, Terry Kennedy singled. Jose Uribe hit into a force play erasing Kennedy. And then Britt Butler singled, sending Uribe to third. Butler, the Giants' leadoff hitter, stole second base. Robbie Thompson lined out to second. Uribe scored, giving Thompson a sack fly and tying the ball game. Ooh, check out that bonnet offense from the Giants. Per MLB rules, Oakland came back in the fourth. Jose Canseco led off by walking. Dave Parker hit a high line drive down the right field line and missed a two-run homer by inches, which just feels unfair. Uh, even all these years later, uh, right fielder Candy Maldonado hesitated slightly in throwing the ball back to the infield, allowing Canseco to score and Parker to reach second base with an RBI double. Dave Henderson then walked. Mark McGuire struck out, bringing Terry Steinbach to the plate with Parker and Hendu aboard. He'd smack a two-out pitch over the left field wall for a three-run blast, extending the A's lead to 5-1, to one, which proved to be the final score. So following Dave Stewart's spectacular Game 1 start, Mike Moore more than held his own in Game 2. Seven innings of work, four hits, two walks, that one run that he allowed, and seven strikeouts. Rick Honeycutt and Dennis Eckersley combined for two perfect innings to close out the contest. And on the other side, Big Daddy followed Scott Gerald's lackluster Game 1 with a less-than-stellar outing of his own. Four innings, five hits, four walks, five runs, all earned. Take that, sucker. You earned all of those. And he allowed a home run and got two strikeouts. But in the words of Austin Powers, whoop-dee-doo, Basil. So uh, the A's were set to take that two games to zilch advantage into game three two days later, which we'll talk about a little in a second here. But first, we got a word from Belt Bar. If you've been a longtime listener of this show or my show, Locked On A's, then you've heard both me and DC talk about Belt Bar. So I'm not exactly sure what I can say about Belt Bar that has not been said already. How about glargle, glargle, glurbity gloop? That's uh, written down for me, but that doesn't make any sense. So I'll simply reiterate that they're doing great tasting protein bars covered in 100% real chocolate. They're low in calories, sugar, and carbohydrates. They are gluten-free, and the nut-free flavors are all produced in a nut-free facility. They come in 18 delicious flavors, which can all be found at BuiltBar.com. And while you're at BuiltBar.com, don't forget about the Built Boost Drink Powder and the Built Go 
energy shots. And all you got to do, you go to beltbar.com and then you use promo code locked on and that will get you 20% off, but only when you use the code locked on. That is one word locked on. And also make sure to go check out their holiday flavors. They got some really good stuff over there, including some limited edition white chocolate flavors. They got cherry sundae, coconut deluxe, both come with white chocolate. They're also giving away candy cane brownie bars with every item purchased. And you get a free advent calendar as well. And you get Built Bites, 12 months of savings. You get, they're, they're offering too much. You've really got to go to BuiltBar.com, see what's best for you. And when you go, use code Locked On, and you'll just be reeling in the savings. So go to BuiltBar.com, use promo code Locked On. That is one word, Locked On. They can only be used at BuiltBar.com. Hey, do you have a comment or question? Send it to LockedOnMariners at gmail.com, and DC will read it and reply to it on the air. Questions and comments on any subject are welcome and, scroll down, encouraged. Just remember, this is a family show, so keep the swearing to a maximum. And uh, just uh, go to LockedOnMariners at gmail.com and just get freaky with it, Mariners fans. I wholeheartedly encourage this. Uh, If it makes DC uncomfortable, uh, the better, I I think. But anyways, my takeover of LockedOnMariners is going to continue here in just one minute after DC sends me the rest of this script. Welcome to the second half of Locked On Mariners. Here's your guest host, Jason Burke. Thanks again, Wink. And if you missed the first half of this episode somehow, uh, DC Lumberg still not feeling great, still not feeling like himself, which is which is probably a good thing for the rest of us. So I, the host of Locked On A's, am filling in for DC today, and the I being me, Jason Burke. Uh, that's I, I'm the host of Locked On A's. But anyways, our subject for today is the 1989 World Series, and so far, Oakland has a two-games-to-none lead heading into Game 3, and uh, Giants manager Roger Craig, who was also the running back for the San Francisco Niners at the time, so he was pulling double duties. Nobody ever talks about that. Uh, he shook up his lineup and tried to get his struggling offense rolling. Matt Williams moved from third base to shortstop, sending Jose Uribe to the bench. Ken Oberfell came out of the Shire and he took over at the hot corner. And Pat Sheridan took Candy Maldonado's place in right field. Bob Welch was going to be starting for the A's and he was going to be opposed by Don Robinson of the Giants. And the game was going to begin here in just a few minutes. Al Michaels and Tim McCarver were setting up the game on television. Fans in Candlestick Park were getting settled for the game, and many fans were still entering the stadium at 5.04 p.m. And then, uh, the, the big thing happened. It was a 7.1 magnitude earthquake that shook the Bay Area, which at first drew a few wild cheers from the crowd, because we're insane out here, you guys. But as news of the destruction and devastation the quake caused circulated to those in the ballpark and everyone realized just how serious the situation was, the cheers just kind of stopped. Players and their wives were on the field with portable radios trying to learn any news that they could about the quake. Both A's and Giants were no longer ballplayers, but all were concerned citizens. And the World Series was now rightfully an afterthought to the healing and repair that was needed following this tragic disaster. Commissioner Faye Vincent said, Our issue is really 
really a modest one in light of the great tragedy that has hit this area. And I just have one quick story about the earthquake from uh, my first-hand point of view. Uh, I was in the Bay Area. I forget where we were living at the time. Uh, Walnut Creek, maybe? I'm not positive. Anyways, uh, I was four years old when it happened, and this is legitimately, I think, my first memory. I know that other things had happened in my life, and I can look at pictures and be like, oh yeah, that's a thing that I remember from looking at this picture, but this is the first thing that I'm like, oh yeah, that that definitely, I remember what I was doing and all that stuff. Uh, I was in my room, and we, my family had a small little house. Uh, I think it was a house. Anyway, I was four. I don't know what houses are. Anyways, uh, I was in my room reading a Charlie Brown book. It had a orange cover, and I was reading it, and then all of a sudden the ground started to shake, and my mom was home, and she was uh, down the hallway, which is like... 15 feet, not very far. And she's like, come to me. And I was like, no, you come to me. Because in my four-year-old head, I was like, if I start walking, I want to bounce up and down the walls. And I don't want to do that like a ping pong ball. So uh, that is basically my memory. She she came over to me and uh, hugged me and then uh, everything was over. My dad was driving around and uh, he was fine, not like on the bridge or anything. And uh, he was just driving around and the game went out and he's like, Where'd the game go? This is BS. So uh, those are my family memories of the earthquake. Um, I have been in the earthquake exhibit over at the California Academy of Science in San Francisco, and uh, it doesn't seem that bad. No, it's actually not fun when you don't know that it's coming because you're shaking. The the ride, if you want to call it that, is fun. Uh, When they come up out of nowhere, not as much. So... Good times. Anyways, let's get back to the series, you guys. With a sense of wanting to help the healing process, the World Series resumed 10 days later on October 27th. The originally scheduled pitching matchup of Robinson versus Welch was scrapped for a rematch of Game 1 with Scott Geralt versus Dave Stewart. San Francisco kept the same changes to its starting lineup, however, and it was Oakland on the board first because that's what they do. They do have guys named the Bash Brothers, which means they bash. That is what they do. Again, check out the Bash Brothers experience on Netflix. Anyways, Dave Stewart, he drove in two runs in the first inning with a double, and that got the A's a quick 2 to nothing lead. In the bottom of the second, the Giants would finally get to Dave Stewart. Matt Williams, who was now the starting shortstop, hit a solo home run against Stewart to make it 2-1, to one, and both teams would blank each other in the third. But in the fourth, Dave Henderson would lead off with a solo home run, and after a ground out, Terry Steinbach went yard to give the A's a 4-1 to one lead. Scott Geraltz was done and was replaced at that time by Kelly Downs. I remember that name. Uh, quiz me on that one, DC. Anyways, uh, who did retire the next two batters to end the inning before it spiraled out of control? San Fran, that's not what we're called. Uh, edit, no, not San Fran. San Francisco is the name. Anybody who says San Fran, total out-of-towner, harshly judged. Anyways, San Fran got two back in the bottom of the inning with a two-run single off the bat of Terry Kennedy, scoring Will Clark and Kevin Mitchell to bring them back to within a run. Kelly Downs, I remember that name. Quiz me on that, DC. Kelly Downs went back to work in the top of the fifth, and remember what I said about him keeping the fourth from spiraling out of control? Well, the fifth was a different story. Ricky Henderson let off with a walk, then stole second base Ricky Rally, and then Curly Lansford also walked, bringing up the mighty Jose Canseco, and he launched a a 2-2 pitch over the left field wall for a three-run bomb, extending his team's lead to 7-3. I'm counting that as a Ricky rally. I don't care. He gets on base. Good things happen. Uh, Downs then got Mark McGuire to fan. I I think that means that he made him wait in a really long line for a beer. Uh, 
Sure. Uh, then Dave Henderson blasted a home run of his own. This one of the solo variety. Downs exited the game, and San Francisco brought Jeff Brantley in from the bullpen, who promptly walked Terry Steinbach, then balked him to second base. A walk. I'll, I'll walk you back, if you will. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that ter- uh, Tony La Russa had a, a term for that, but I'm going to go with a walk you um, however, he did strike out Tony Phillips looking, then got Walt Weiss to ground out. Still, the damage had been done. Four runs for Oakland and an 8-3 advantage. Dave Stewart then went on cruise control until he was pinch hit for. He'd go seven innings, allow five hits, three runs and only one walk, and strike out eight. With that 8-3 lead, Carney Lansford added a solo homer in the sixth. Then Oakland would explode again in the eighth against Atlee Hamacker. Never heard that name. Do leave that off of Jeopardy forever. Uh, with the game seemingly already decided, Walt Weiss and Lance Blankenship both singled to open the frame. One out later, Carney Lansford would single through the hole at short, plating both runners. Lansford would advance to second on the throw home. Then Jose Canseco came up. He singled. He moved Lansford over to third. Mark McGuire then grounded out to the pitcher, Hamacker. Uh, I'm going to look that name up. That's funny. Uh, Lansford scored on the play, and then the A's had a 12-3 lead. After Dave Henderson was hit by a pitch, Terry Steinbach singled home Canseco for a 10-run lead. Craig Lefferts came in from the pen to relieve Hamacker. Ha, ha, macker. Uh, and he got Tony Phillips to fly out to end another nightmarish inning for the Giants. It feels as though this series wasn't going very well for San Francisco, and I laugh. Uh, they'd fail to score in the bottom of the eighth, but they would try to mount a comeback in the ninth, down 13-3 to at that point. The A's had brought in Gene Nelson, and he was facing Ken Oberkfell, and he would walk to open the inning. Matt Williams flew out, and then Kirk Manwaring would double. He had a kid that was uh, playing for the Giants just a few years ago. Anyways, Bill Bath hit for the pitcher and cranked a three-run home run, and one one out later, Donnell Nixon reached on a single, and Gene Nelson was removed for the game in favor of Todd Burns. The first man he would face would be future Mariner Greg Litton, and he'd hit a double plating Nixon to bring the Giants just a little bit closer with the score now being 13-7. Will Clark then walked, bringing up National League home run leader and RBI king Kevin Mitchell. He of the one-handed catch. With Litton and Clark aboard, Mitchell flew out to deep center field, ending the Giants' rally, and the ball came with that 13-7 score. Uh, the Giants were now in big trouble down three games to zero against a team that many experts thought was the best team in baseball at the time. They still are, if you listen to the right people, i.e. me, Locked On A's. Follow us at Locked On A's on Twitter. But back to this series, another shakeup of the starting lineup was deemed necessary, and Robbie Thompson was benched in favor of Greg Litton, Ken Oberkfell, uh, hit second in the lineup, which was ordinarily Thompson's spot in the order, and Roger Craig entrusted this important game to Don Robinson, and he got off to a shaky start because, you know, it follows the, the narrative of the whole series, so that's fun. Uh, after taking two balls out of the zone, leadoff man Ricky Henderson belted a home run over the right field wall. That's what we call a Ricky rally. So the A's were up one to nothing after one batter, and while Ricky was certainly an adept contact hitter, he could also draw a walk better than most, and he also shined on the base pass, and the fact that he could give his team a one to nothing instant lead made him the most complete package as a leader off hitter no one had done it better before or since and uh 
cards on the table. That was written for me. I didn't just come up with that. That was written by the host of Locked On Mariners, DC Lundberg. So, uh, you know, it's got to be true. Whereas most of the time, I'm just pulling facts out of my butt. People are always like, yeah, you know, as it was written, this was literally written. So, uh, facts. Anyways, uh, Robinson did retire the next three hitters. He's the guy that started for the Giants just because I uh, sidetracked. Robinson retired the next three hitters, and Mike Moore escaped his first half of the first unscathed as Brett Butler let off doing what he does best, and that was reaching first base on a bunt single. Dave Henderson let off the top of the second with a double against Robinson. Two outs later, Walt Weiss was intentionally walked to get to Mike Moore, and Moore had spent his entire career in the American League and had one career at bat, which came in 1987 with the Seattle Mariners. While the strategy to put Weiss on to get to the pitcher was good, it backfired as Moore hit a line drive to the warning track in center, scoring both runs. Mike Moore showing up with the power. Gotta love that. And uh, he wound up with a double and two RBI for his efforts. He'd probably be driven in by a Ricky Henderson single, and Roger Craig had seen enough of Don Robinson, and I'm tired of reading his name too, so good job on Roger Craig for that one. He brought in Mike Lacoste before things could get any further out of hand. Lacoste gave up a walk and a single, but nothing else, and the inning would end with the A's up 4 to nothing. All was relatively quiet until the 5th, with Mike Lacoste still on the mound. Terry Steinbach came up with runners at 1st and 2nd with 2 outs. He laced a triple. Uh, again, a catcher with a triple. He laced one down the right field line, driving home Jose Canseco and Dave Henderson. Tony Phillips would then double, sending home Steinbach, uh, and that would make it 7 to nothing with the A's in front, and then they would extend that to an 8 to nothing lead in the 6th against Jeff Brantley. Ricky let off with a triple and was brought home in short order on a Carney Lansford single. Uh, the next half frame, the Giants would finally get on the scoreboard with Kevin Mitchell providing the needed spark. With two outs and Will Clark on first, he launched one to left for a two-run tater, but that would be it for the inning, and they'd have to settle for an 8-2 to two deficit. They'd get back a few more in the seventh, however. Gene Nelson now on the bump for Oakland because they didn't give a damn anymore, and Terry Kennedy walked to lead off the inning. Then Greg Linton would hit one out of the yard to bring it to 8-4. to four. Donnell Nixon was retired, bringing up the pitcher spot. Ernest Riles was announced as the pinch hitter, so Tony LaRusso went to Southpaw Rick Honeycutt to face the left-handed hitter. Roger Craig countered with right-handed hitting Candy Maldonado. The Candy Man would triple, bringing up Britt Butler, another great contact hitter, but he had relatively little power. But Butler would go against the narrative, hitting a double, plating Maldonado, and would be then driven in by a Robbie Thompson single. Thompson was pinch hit for by Oberkfell. Rick Honeycutt then retired the Will the Thrill Clark, which caused Tony LaRusso to come out, replace Honeycutt with Todd Burns, who retired Kevin Mitchell, to end the inning with an 8-6 A's lead. In the top of the 8th inning, Terry Steinbach would step up to the plate with one out and the bases loaded and the usually reliable Steve Bedrosian walked him, forcing in the ninth run of the game for the A's and giving Steinbach a gift-wrapped RBI. Tony Phillips would pop out to end the inning and San Francisco would go 1-2-3 in the bottom of the frame against Todd Burns. Bedrock also set the A's down in order in the top of the ninth, sending this 9-6 ball game 
into the final half inning and up by three runs. Of course, Tony La Russa would turn to his ace closer, except for in 1988. Dennis Eckersley to try to slam the door and complete the series sweep of the Crosstown Rivals. The first batter he'd face would be Donnell Nixon, who was a former M's farmhand who still holds the organization's record for stolen bases in a season, swiping an astounding 144 bags in 1983 for the Class A Bakersfield Mariners, and he tried to utilize some of that speed by bunting off of Eckersley on the first pitch. The ball went to the second baseman, and he threw it over to first. Uh, throw beat him, so that was a uh, one out. The next batter was Jose Uribe, who entered the game in the top of the eighth as a part of a double switch. He flew out to left field on the first pitch he saw, and the Giants' last hope after two pitches from Dennis Eckersley was Brett Butler. On an 0-1 count, Butler grounded to second baseman Tony Phillips, who threw on to Eck, who was covering first base, and the sweep was complete. Oakland had won all four games of the 1989 World Series and did so in pretty decisive fashion. The MVP of the World Series was Dave Stewart, because he won a couple of games and he was a bad man. And while the A's were in the midst of a dominating stretch where they'd make it back to the World Series the following year, this World Series is best remembered for the tragic earthquake. Giants first baseman Will Clark may have said it best. It puts everything into perspective in that baseball is only a game and has pretty much nothing to do with life. But anyway, Mariners fans, that is it for this episode. Uh, I'm going to get some water for myself because I just read seven pages of notes on the 1989 World Series and I am parched. But uh, that was a lot of fun talking about the A's and their last World Series. Um, I'm I'm hoping, legitimately, I do not like to make fun of the Mariners because I did grow up uh, liking the Mariners quite a bit. I grew up in the Ken Griffin Jr. era. And uh, he was always fun and exciting. So I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the Mariners. And uh, I I think that they're going to be pretty good pretty soon. I've talked about it on my podcast on at Locked on A's, saying that once they get a little bit of pitching, they're going to be a very, very scary team. And the A's part of me does not look forward to the Mariners' reign over their uh, their new AL West Dominion. But uh, the fan of me that likes baseball, I'm like, yeah, g- give me some Jared Kellenic. Give me some uh, Julio Rodriguez, who I'm very excited about. Uh, they've got so many good young players. Kyle Lewis just won the AL Rookie of the Year. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I was definitely pulling for him, but I thought that the stupid writers would vote for the other guy, uh, Lewis Roberts. That's the guy, Lou Bob, as somebody used to call him. Um, so yeah, that's uh, but that is it for me today, you guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this rendition of me reading DC's words. Uh, if you want to see some more A's talk and all that stuff, I do uh, an AL West Watch segment. It's called West Watch. When the season is going on, uh, if the Mariners do anything in the offseason, I'll probably be talking about that too because I just enjoy talking about baseball. Obviously, I have to make it with a little bit more of an A's slant, but if the Mariners do something cool, I'm going to talk about it because I just like baseball. So uh, follow me at ByJasonB on Twitter. You can follow my show at Locked On A's on Twitter or Instagram. And uh, you can follow Locked On Mariners at LO underscore Mariners. And uh, DC Lumberg is like DC Lumberg or something like that. I don't know. Um, so yeah, uh, do all those. Subscribe to both the podcasts if you haven't already. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this 1989 World Series recap. But I'm just going to kind of keep talking because I don't know how to sign up for this podcast. Uh, usually for mine, the A's use Cool and the Gang Celebrate as their victory song at the end of every baseball game. So I go uh, go out and celebrate good times, Oakland. Keep wearing those masks and I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. But uh, for Seattle, I, I think that your victory song is Jimi Hendrix's Fire, which just doesn't lend itself quite as well because I could go, let me stand next to your fire, Seattle, and I'll talk at you guys later. 
Uh, but that doesn't sound right. So, uh, hey, go out there, have a great weekend or a great holiday. I don't know when he's going to release this. So just have a good time. Do what you do. Enjoy some Mariners baseball because they're going to be really good soon. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk to you guys soon. If not, you can hear this voice at Locked On A's and do all that stuff. So uh, have a great time, Seattle. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I look forward to facing you kind of because I like watching good baseball, but I'm also scared. So uh, be nice. Uh, bye. This is Joey Martin speaking for Locked On Mariners, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. 